Okay, so here we go, guys. It is Abside season. We're in it. 2021, Abside 2021. This is going to be the year. It's been a terrible year, so let's make it a good year for the Abside. Uh, you guys asked, we delivered. So we now have a print version of the Abside podcast companion available on Amazon. Again, just search for Absite, search for Behind the Knife. Um, it's a print version. There's also uh, the e-version available as well. Uh, we'll put a link to that down in the show notes. So check it out. It's got some updates this year as well as some fantastic uh, illustrations. Um, and it's just a, a much higher quality. We're very proud of it. Um, and uh, uh, we put a lot of hard work into it. So we appreciate you. It helps out if you go, you know, leave a review for the book. Uh, let us know what you think. Check out our YouTube channel. Subscribe. We have a lot of stuff up on there. Um, you know, again, you know, give us your feedback on, on what you want. You know, we're we're doing this for you. Everything we that comes from the book, all the proceeds are going right back into creating content, trying to make this a, a better platform to provide uh, you guys with what you need. Uh, we are here to help. So, with that, here we go. Absite uh, review. Uh, spleen is the topic today. All right, let's jump right into it. Anatomy, woo. When we talk about the spleen, there's uh, a lot of connections, a lot of different ligaments. What are the main surgical or the important surgical uh, ligaments associated with the spleen? So you want to consider four key ligaments, the gastrosplenic, the splenorenal, the splenocolic, and the splenophrenic. Of these, the gastrosplenic and splenorenal have a particular clinical relevance. The gastrosplenic contains the short gastrics, and the splenorenal ligament contains the splenic vessels in the tail of the pancreas. Yep, and you'll see that ask. They'll ask, you know, where through what ligament does the splenic vessels travel, and that's the splenorenal. So know, just know those associations. Uh, okay, Kevin, uh, when we think about the spleen, we break it up into red pulp and white pulp. What, what, uh, what are the distinctions between the red pulp and the white pulp? So the red pulp is basically the filter. Uh, it's the mechanical filtration, thin-walled splenic sinusoids separate, uh, separated by splenic cords and containing red cells. So this really just filters out the, the damaged red blood cells. What's white pulp do? Uh, white pulp is a complete, it's almost like a different organ. This is, uh, does all the immunologic functions. Uh, it has lymphoid follicles that uh, help with B cells. And then there's the PALs or the periarterial lymphatic sheath that uh, forms T-cells. Yeah, so it's pretty easy to remember. The red pulp is you know, made of splenic cores that contain red blood cells. The white pulp contains all your white blood cells and your immunologic function. So it's pretty easy to remember. Which is more predominant in the spleen, red pulp or white pulp? Red pulp. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, woo, uh, what's, what's the spleen even do? Like, what, what, what are the main functions of the spleen? So the spleen forms a multitude of functions. You want to uh, think about the storage of platelets, culling of senescent erythrocytes, the re-energizing of erythrocytes through pitting, uh, immune function, uh, which essentially the spleen is the largest concentration of lymphoid tissue in the body. You said what? You said pitting. What is what is pitting? Yeah, so pitting is the removal of intracellular products. Okay, and what's uh, you'll see proteins like tufsin and proparidin. What what are those? Mm -hmm. And those have a role in opsonization. Okay. So all that being said, now we know what the spleen does. Um, in somebody who has a splenectomy, what kind of changes do we see uh, in the circulating blood cells? Yes, and this is 
from step one till absite for whatever reason, highly testable. Uh, so if a patient has had a splenectomy, their blood smear is going to look different than the person that hasn't. So you're going to see how jolly bodies, which is the most uh, reliable finding. And you're going to see nuclear remnants uh, in these red blood cells that would have otherwise been removed by the spleen. You're also going to see Pappenheimer uh, bodies, which is iron deposits in the blood cells. And then you'll see some target cells, which are just immature red blood cells. And then you can see Heinz bodies, which is intracellular denatured hemoglobin. Um, and then you'll see some spur cells, some deformed uh, red blood cells that would have otherwise been removed. And then, uh, so what if you what if you perform a splenectomy and then you look at a peripheral spear and you don't see any of these? What do you have to think about? Right, you have to think about an accessory spleen, uh, which can be most frequently found in the hilum of the spleen. All right, so let's go over those again real quick. So, woo, I'm going to say the name of a cell. You're going to tell me what that means. So, uh, target cell. What's a target cell? Immature red blood cell. Pappenheimer body. Iron deposits. Howell Jolly bodies. Nuclear remnants. Uh, spur cell. Deformed membrane. Heinz bodies. Intracellular denatured hemoglobin. Perfect. Okay. And I would go and look at these images uh, of these cells quickly just because I have seen them on there um, and you may have to recognize them on a smear. Yeah. And it, it, fun fact, if you guys just Google image some of these things, you may see that exact image show up on the first image that pops up. That exact image may show up on the actual test. I've, I've done that before. So it's pretty reliable. Um, okay. What are some indications for splenectomy? So you want to think about the unstable trauma patient. Uh, you think about hematologic disorders such as ITP and spherocytosis. Those are the two most common. Uh, splenic abscesses, symptomatic cysts, and primary malignancies, mainly non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Okay, so let's get into it a little bit. Uh, so splenic trauma. Um, where splenic trauma can either secondary to iatrogenic trauma from a splenic capsular tear, particularly on like upper, upper GI type surgeries. Um, or colon surgeries with some overvigorous retraction or, you know, penetrating and blunt trauma. So how do you, how does the, the type of, of, uh, trauma change management? How do we treat most penetrating traumas, Kevin? Uh, you're going to do a splenectomy. Yeah. Especially on the boards. If you have penetrating abdominal trauma with a splenic injury, you're going to do a splenectomy. Um, certainly there are some, you know, splenic salvage and splenic preservation type things, but I I think on the boards, keep it simple. Splenectomy, uh, blunt trauma. How, how do we manage these? Will? So these, you want to think about selective non-operative management. What kind of patients can you, uh, when you say selective non-operative management, what types of patients can you uh, manage non-operatively? Yeah, these patients must be hemodynamically stable and not have peritonitis. Yep. So hem- if they're unstable, they have peritonitis, those patients are taken to the operating for, through a, for a splenectomy. Uh, what do we mean when we say non-operative management? So this consists of a period of uh, in-hospital, typically ICU observation, uh, serial abdominal exams, serial hematocrit measurements, a period of immobility, so bed rest and post-discharge restricted activity. What do you think about that period of immobility? Like, what what does that mean? How long uh, do we have to keep patients immobile? So this is actually not entirely clear. Uh, some literature says up to a period of weeks. Uh, the absent is unlikely to specifically ask this. Yeah, good. Uh, I think most places, I don't know, 24, 48 hours, some people go by different grading systems, a degree of splenic uh, or the grade of the splenic injury plus a certain number of hours or days. But if you look through the literature, there's not really a whole got good, a whole lot of data to back up any of these. So uh, unlikely to ask on a task. 
Um, what kind of, what's another option? So is there, we can do nothing or we can take them to the operating room, take their spleen out. What's, what's another option, Kevin? Uh, angiography can be helpful. And what, when, what type of patients should we consider angiography? So you're going to want the patient to be stable. Um, that, cause that would be a contraindication to angiography. Uh, the double AST recommends, uh, injuries that are greater than a grade three injury. So which would be a subcapsular hematoma greater than 50% or a ruptured subcapsular hematoma, or a laceration greater than 3% involving some of the trabecular vessels. Um, and so, so those patients could be considered for angiography if they're stable. If there's a presence of contrast blush in a stable patient, this used to be an indication for a splenectomy, but now a stable patient with a contrast blush can undergo angiography and non-operative management. And then, uh, you know, even patients with moderate hemoperitoneum that are otherwise stable, um, can be considered for non-operative and angi- angiographic intervention. And then if you have any concerns for ongoing splenic bleeding, uh, this would be a patient that should be considered for angiography. Yeah. So, you know, if they're, say, you know, they're, you're able to stabilize them, but they're still kind of drifting down. They have some hemoperitoneum. Again, you see that blush on, on their, on their imaging. Um, and for the, per the, you know, AAST grades three uh, injuries, you consider um, angiographic intervention. Okay, so that's it for splenic trauma. Uh, let's move on to some other indications for um, splenectomy, and those are your hematologic disorders. So, woo, uh, autoimmune thrombocytopenia purpura. Tell me about it. Yeah, so immune thrombocytopenic purpura, or ITP, it's thought to be uh, caused by autoantibodies to GP2B3A, so glycoproteins, uh, as well as GP1A2A. Uh, the initial management is medical. You want to start with steroids uh, and consider IVIG before you move towards surgical management. Um, for patients who are medically refractory, you would consider doing a splenectomy. Medically refractory or, or what else? What would be another reason for a splenectomy? Yeah, another reason could be recurrence or a third reason could be avoiding the need for long-standing steroid use. Right, yeah. So, you, you know, you may have a patient that responds medically, but then it recurs, or you may have a patient that needs to be on, you know, will, will need to be on prolonged uh, steroids, which is, is not ideal. So those are patients that you certainly want to consider a, a splenectomy. So who has a, a, a good response? The patients that are medically refractory or the, the patients that say, respond well, and then it recurs when they come off steroids. So it's actually the latter. The patients who have a good response to steroids generally have a favorable response after the splenectomy. Okay. So these patients, you're talking about taking a patient to the operating room that's thrombocytopenic. So uh, obviously, they're concerned for bleeding. So when do you want to transfuse platelets in these patients? So ideally, you only transfuse platelets for bleeding intraoperatively. Uh, and there's a specific way to do this. You give the platelets after ligating the splenic artery, and this prevents consumption of the transfused platelets. Yep. And, and they'll ask you that question. They'll say, when do you want to transfuse platelets? And they'll give you the options after you ligate, you know, at the, you know, 30 minutes before the procedure, once you cut the skin, after you ligate the splenic artery, after you ligate the splenic vein. So in that, in that situation, the, the answer is going to be after you ligate the splenic artery, unless of course you're, they're bleeding and, and you need to give them platelets for, for hemostasis. But ideally after you clamp the splenic artery. Um, what about hereditary spherocytosis, Kevin? Hereditary spherocytosis clinically presents with anemia and splenomegaly, generally in children too. This is uh, an autosomal defect in the, the cell membrane protein. If you remember back to step one, the spectrin, uh, is what is the, defective. And so the red blood cells are less deformable and they end up being culled by the spleen. 
And so for these patients, uh, splenectomy is recommended uh, for symptomatic patients older than six years old with the thought of trying to leave the spleen in long enough to develop uh, immune function prior to splenectomy. Yeah, so it's a good point. So uh, patients, you typically try to get them to, to six years old before you do your splenectomy. What do you have to think about in addition to the splenectomy at the time of operation in these patients? Yeah, so these patients will generally, so they've had a lot of hemolysis and this will cause uh, gallstones to form from the hemolysis. And so you want to um, perform a cholecystectomy at the time of the, of the splenectomy. Yep, so it's a definitely an important association to know. Uh, anytime you have increased hemolysis and with the hereditary spherocytosis, you certainly do. You have an increased risk of gallstones. So think about a cholecystectomy at the time of your splenectomy. Um, okay. Uh, some of the, like the more lesser known, less commonly tested indications for a splenectomy. Uh, one would be pyruvate kinase deficiency, which is a congenital hemolytic anemia caused by impaired glucose metabolism. That's actually the most common hereditary reason for a splenectomy that is not a, um, structural problem. So not a structural protein like the hereditary spherocytosis. Uh, and then some hemoglobinopathies, the sickle cell, thalassemias, those, those are rarely an indication for a splenectomy. And I, I don't think those are very common. They're very likely to show up on the test. So from there, let's move on to um, some splenic lesions. So um, woo, uh, as we have more and more cross-sectional abdominal imaging, we're finding more incidental findings. Uh, something we may see are, are splenic cysts. Can you tell me a little about those? Yeah, so here, look for a well-defined hypodense lesion without an enhancing rim. Uh, these could be true cysts, so congenital, parasitic, or neoplastic, or they could be false cysts, uh, essentially a post-traumatic pseudocyst. I think you'll see that a lot. Somebody who had maybe had a car accident in, in the in the distant, like when they're twenty years ago, and now they got a CT for something else, and you see this this splenic cyst, and it's it's post traumatic. Uh, what do you want to do about these when you see them on CT? Yeah, so generally you want to think about whether the patient is symptomatic or not, and whether this is small or large. So generally, cysts can be left alone if they're asymptomatic, uh, and the serology and imaging characteristics typically rule out a parasitic cyst or malignancy. However, if they are large, so greater than 5 centimeters or symptomatic, you could consider laparoscopic cyst excision or fenestration. Okay, how about uh, another common you know, finding would be a, a hemangioma. Uh, Kevin, how do you manage hemangiomas of the, of the spleen? So if they're symptomatic, you do a splenectomy. And if they're not symptomatic? You leave them alone. Okay. Uh, a more serious splenic tumor would be an angiosarcoma, um, which is a primary malignant tumor of the spleen. Uh, what are some associations with uh, mangiosarcoma? Yeah, there are some uh, vinyl chloride and thorium dioxide exposure. And what do you do with these? Uh, so unfortunately, most of them are not caught in time, but if you catch it in time that it's localized disease, you do a splenectomy. Okay. And another thing to mention just briefly is, is another, you know, primary tumor of the spleen you can get it are lymphomas, either non-Hodgkin's lymphomas or CLL. Um, and you'll generally be performing a splenectomy for, for these. Um, okay. Uh, Kevin, you're a budding vascular surgeon. Let's talk about splenic artery aneurysms. Uh, teach us about them. Yeah, so this is the most common visceral artery aneurysm, um, and they're more common in women, and uh, so they and they they can be deadly. Um, what you you generally hear of is the double rupture uh, sign, where a patient will uh, develop acute abdominal pain, um, but they'll kind of uh, stabilize and and not get 
And that's because the splenic artery is in the lesser sac and it is uh, tamponaded by the lesser sac. And then uh, the second rupture is when the um, lesser sac doesn't hold the blood anymore and it's it's intraperitoneal. um, And this is when they get hypotensive and can die. Um, So the most concerning thing is, is these aneurysms in women that are pregnant as their risk of rupture goes up. Um, And so all women should be treated that are pregnant um, regardless of size, or even if they're of childbearing age and may be considering getting pregnant, obviously you like to do this before they're pregnant um, due to the high risk. And I think they think it's related to the hormone status. All the uh, hormones in pregnant women increase these, uh, you know, the risk of rupture. Yeah, I've heard that. Okay, so pregnant women, definitely uh, women of childbearing age, regardless of size, if they have a splenic artery aneurysm, need to be repaired. What about um, men or non-childbearing age women? Right. So in these patients, uh, greater than two centimeters is the size cutoff. Okay, so greater than two centimeters is the size cutoff for repair. Uh, how, do, how do you treat these? So uh, um, traditionally now, we're actually able to coil embolize these. Um, and, or in some places... Um, I've not seen this cause the, the splenic artery is very, uh, has, it's kind of curly cue, like a pig's tail almost. So a stents are a little bit harder to place, but you, some places do place covered stents and then a very distal aneurysm in the hilum of the spleen. Uh, you'd want to consider a splenectomy. Okay. So yeah, I think these are the ones that usually in the past they were treating with either open or laparoscopic uh, splenic artery ligation, and that's still an acceptable option. But um, certainly if you have endovascular capabilities, doing a coil embolization or placing a covered stent, if you can get one in there, um, is the preferred treatment these days. Um, okay, moving on. Next topic would be splenic abscesses. So who, who gets splenic abscesses? Yeah. So risk factors look for IV drug use, endocarditis, a secondary infection of a traumatic pseudocyst or sickle cell disease. Uh, yeah, so these patients will often be very sick at the time of presentation um, and, and septic. Um, there are, the, however, a couple different treatment options. Um, so we'll, what are those and how do you decide what to do about these? Yeah, so when you look at these on imaging, look for their features. Is it unilocular with a thick wall in a stable patient? Or is it multilocular, thin-walled, uh, or you may suspect echinococcal abscess or the patient is sick. So in the former case with a unilocular thick wall in a stable patient, these are typically amenable to percutaneous drainage, uh, whereas the multilocular thin walled possible echinococcal or, or unstable sick patient splenectomy is indicated. Yeah, so I, I think in the test-taking world, I would lean towards doing a splenectomy for most of these, um, unless they gave you a very stable patient who had that unilocular uh, abscess with a very thick wall, and then you can consider percutaneous drainage. But anybody else, if it's multilocular, if they're sick, they're, they're getting a splenectomy. Um, okay, we talked about lots of reasons and uh, for taking the spleen out, but let's talk about some of the ramifications of taking that spleen out. So, um, uh, Kevin, what can you tell me about post-splenectomy infections? Yeah, so the spleen is important for uh, making IgM and IgG, and so this leads to increased susceptibility of encapsulated organisms due to decreased opsonization. And so these organisms uh, are strep pneumo, Neisseria meningitidis, and Haemophilus influenza. Yeah, that's an important pathophysiology thing to kind of understand. So it's your encapsulated organisms, so strep pneumo, uh, Neisseria, and H. flu, um, and it's due to loss of opsonization, uh, specifically through a, a drastic drop in the amount of circulating IgM. 
Uh, so how do we, when do we, when's the most ideal time to vaccinate against these encapsulated organisms? Uh, two weeks prior to an elective splenectomy and then prior to hospital discharge following an emergent splenectomy. Correct. Um, so they'll, they'll, they will ask you that. A lot of times they'll give you a trauma patient who had to have an emergent splenectomy. They'll ask you, when do you want to vaccinate them? Um, you know, two weeks later, six weeks later, prior to hospital discharge. And the answer is going to be prior to hospital discharge. For elective cases, you want to vaccinate two weeks before the case. Um, okay. What's OPSI, Wu? So OPSI stands for overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. Uh, the risk is higher in children, especially in hematologic disease such as beta thalassemia. Yeah, so that's one of those. Beta thalassemia is the highest risk, and sometimes you'll see that asked. Is what's the, it'll give you a list of people: a trauma patient, a kid with hereditary spherocytosis, a lymphoma patient, or you know somebody with the beta thalassemia, and ask which is the highest risk. So it's going to be the the kid with the hematologic disorder is going to be the highest risk. Um, so how about if you have a kid who had a, splen had a splenectomy and now they have a little bit of a fever? How do you, how do you want to approach that? Yeah. So this is one of those next step in management questions. And the answer is going to be broad spectrum antibiotics immediately. You do not want to wait for cultures. Yeah. You don't want to mess around with this. It's got a high mortality rate. So you want to get on top of it quickly. So how about giving people prophylactic antibiotics, um, after they've had their spleens out? What's the, what, what do we do about that? So in adults, no, generally no, but you might consider giving prophylactic antibiotics in children uh, less than uh, 10 years old. Yeah, there's a little bit of controversial, but for young kids after um, antibiotics, put them on a prophylactic, uh, I think something like Augmentin um, uh, is uh, is reasonable. Definitely not in, not, not in adults. And all these patients uh, should have wristbands that say that they've had a splenectomy. And additionally, they should all have a prescription of antibiotics um, at home in case they do start developing signs of fever or infection. They should start them on their own while coming to get care. All right. Good point. So that's a great little overview of uh, the spleen for Absite and the boards. So as always, let's end with some some quick hits. So, uh, Wu, you have a patient who's a, a post-splenectomy for ITP who has persistent thrombocytopenia and a peripheral smear uh, sh shows um, no howl-jowl bodies. So here, the patient has an accessory spleen. Uh, you should consider imaging with a radionuclide spleen scan, essentially a tagged RBC scan. And what's the most common location of that accessory spleen? The splenic hilum. Okay. Uh, Kevin, what is the most common in organism associated with OPSI? Uh, strep pneumo. Yep. Strep pneumo is the most common one. Like we said, it's all the encapsulated organisms, but strep pneumo is the most common. Woo. Uh, so you have a patient who has abdominal pain and the CT shows a spleen in the right lower quadrant. Uh, abdominal ultrasound shows no flow in the splenic vein. What's the diagnosis? A wandering spleen. Okay, and what's, what's a wandering spleen? So this is actually caused by a failure of fusion of the dorsal mesogastrium leading to a lack of splenic ligaments. And what's the problem with that, having a wandering spleen? The big problem is the risk of splenic torsion and infarction. Okay, how do you manage a wandering spleen? So if there is splenic infarction, you do a splenectomy. Otherwise, you can do a splenopexy. Perfect, okay. Uh, so Kevin, you do a splenectomy in a trauma patient and you get called the night of surgery that they're hypotensive and, uh, their belly's distended. What happened? Uh, probably did not seal off the short gastrics well enough. Yep. So that's the most common source of post splenectomy bleeding is from those, uh, those pesky short gastrics. 
so woo, you have a patient with abdominal pain following a splenectomy. The CT scan shows a, um, a large low attenuation fluid collection um, in the in the lesser sac in your, your surgical bed. What are you thinking about? This is a pancreatic leak from the tail of the pancreas. Yep, so the tail of the pancreas can encroach in that splenic hilum and oftentimes gets uh, is, is an innocent bystander and it gets myotrogenic injury. So um, what, what would be your treatment for this patient? I would start with a percutaneous strain. Especially, yeah, if it's contained, uh, start with a percutaneous strain, definitely. Uh, okay, Kevin, uh, patient with a fever, hemolytic anemia, renal failure, uh, uh, purpura, and uh, some neurologic changes. What's the diagnosis? So this is the dreaded thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, or TTP. Yeah, I think there's an acronym or that goes along with this, like fat RN, fever, anemia, uh, neurologic changes, renal failure, purpura. Anybody remember that from med school? Regardless, what's the cause of TTP? So this is a defective Adam TS13 metalloproteinase, which is, helps with a von Willebrand factor cleaving protein. Uh, so this causes platelet aggregation in the microvasculature. Yeah, basically you have these large von Willebrand factors floating around and you get, you get like you said, platelet aggregation in, in the, the, the microvascular and especially in kind of the renal vessels. How do you treat these? It's different than ITP. So TTP is treated different than ITP. How do you treat TTP? Yeah, this is an emergency generally and uh, plasmapheresis can help. Yep. So plasmapheresis to clear out those, those large uh, um, coagulation proteins. So Jason, uh, Here's one quick hit for you. How about um, a patient that's had a sleeve gastrectomy, um, is having some left upper quadrant pain and gets a CT scan to rule out an abscess or something like that, and they see a infarcted uh, top part of the spleen, a top pole of the spleen. What would you do with that patient? So uh, I think what you're getting at is, um, you know, once you take down the short gastrics, you can get a little bit of ischemia, uh, particularly to the, you know, the superior pole of the spleen. You can get a little splenic infarct. Fortunately, most people... Um, uh, handle a little splenic infarct well. Um, it's, it, there's no serious long-term sequela. They may have a little pain for a while, but I would just manage that patient expectantly. Definitely. All right. Well, thanks for joining us again. Uh, we got some more coming for you in the coming days, but that was spleen for the outside boards.